When I first became a Christian, and I hadn't grown up in church, and many of you know the story, and uh, one of the things that was a little bit strange to me uh, was getting up early on a Sunday morning. That was a, that was a new idea, because um, that was a day to sleep in, you know, and, and uh, I would sleep in and finish my homework, and, and those are the things that I would accomplish on a Sunday, and then all of a sudden, now I was a new Christian, I didn't become a Christian in church, I became a Christian on a baseball field, so... Um, I, I've always been a little bit different and, and, uh, coming to, well, I don't understand why you're laughing. <laughs> coming to church on a Sunday morning was a different thing for me. It was a little strange. And, um, but it, it was, I came to understand, uh, not long after I became a Christian that, that this is what you do as Christians. We gather together. We come here together on a Sunday morning and we, we dress up a little nicer maybe than we normally do and we bring our Bibles and we shake people's hands and we hug people and that was new to me. I didn't do a lot of that before either. And so there were a lot of new things about Sunday morning that, that were a normal part and are a normal part of what it means to be a Christian. That, that we come to church on a Sunday morning. And that was new to me. And I had to be kind of instructed in that regard. I had to be instructed in regard to a lot of things as a new Christian. And, um, and so uh, certainly on coming to church. Well, then I would come to church and I would find that the parking lot was already full and there were people already here. And it was kind of strange. Why, why were they here like early? And I found out there's a, such a thing as Sunday school. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know. You know, I, I knew the words Sunday and school, but... I didn't know what that thing was. And, uh, and so then pretty soon after I learned to come to church as a new Christian, then I learned I should probably go to Sunday school as a, as a Christian. And, uh, and I found that, of course, the interaction is very different in a Sunday school class. Uh, I was a pretty shy kid, and so I, I wasn't one to raise my hand and, and object or ask for clarification on something. Um, yeah, I was pretty quiet, but... I found that there's a lot more interaction in a Sunday school environment, and it's not such a big group. It's a much smaller group, and and for me, at the time, I was a high school student, so I sat in with a bunch of high school students with one teacher for us, and and I found that I learned um, in a different way from a Sunday school environment. And so as we were talking about children's church and and uh, Sunday school attendance and, and children's Sunday school and things like that, let me encourage you. Maybe no one ever has. No one had, you know, it took, took a while for me to learn. And so maybe no one ever has encouraged you about this. But, you know, we the way we go through the Bible and the way we preach in this kind of a setting obviously is very valuable. This is the preaching of God's Word. You can see that everywhere in Scripture that this is highly valued. But you can gain something a little bit different by coming to a Sunday school class where you, where you maybe cover a topic more fully and you're able to, to ask questions when you didn't understand or, uh, or maybe, maybe ask for clarification with you didn't quite, you know, agree with what was said or something like that. And so a Sunday school environment is, is a little bit more systematic and it's more interactive. You know, I've been to churches where there's a lot of interaction between the preacher and the congregation and, and that was a lot of fun, but for me that would be difficult to, to, uh, to preach in such an environment. But there is a lot to be gained from a Sunday school time. You will learn a ton in Sunday school in a different way than you will learn it from this, uh, this environment here. So uh, I commend you for being here for the preaching of the word. And let me also encourage you to, uh, to come to Sunday school 
which starts at nine o'clock and we have a, a different uh, environment and it, 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 there's more intera- uh, interaction and you will learn in a different way and you will be blessed in a different way than we are in this environment. So certainly uh, I'm glad that you're here and this is the preaching of God's word and, and singing together. This is the fellowship uh, of the saints together. We should be certainly doing this, uh, but, but a lot of us are missing out on what could be gained by going to a Sunday school class. And so I had to learn that. Someone had to tell me that and, uh, and here I am telling you. So, um, and, and that does tie into our message today that, that, uh, as believers, as members of the covenant community, as members of the body of Christ, there are certain things that change in our lives when we enter into that relationship with God, when we enter into that relationship with the church. And we're going to talk about what some of those were for the people of Israel immediately following their time at Sinai. And so uh, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 and, uh, starting in verse 22, and then we're going to go to the end of the chapter. And then we're going to do an odd thing. We're going to skip over to chapter 23 and do verses 10 through 19, as you see in your notes there, if you have notes from your bulletin. And the reason I'm doing that is not because I didn't like the stuff in between, <laughs> but, but we're going to cover that stuff next week. But uh, this is this is what's called the Book of the Covenant. It's referred to uh, later on in, in uh, 24 and verse 7. It's referred to as the Book of the Covenant. And so it's meant to go together, but it... it it has one feel and deals with one manner of one type of topic in the beginning of that book of the covenant, which is this section of the end of 22 through, or excuse me, the end of 20 and in to uh, chapter 24. And so the beginning of it deals with one set of topics and in a certain way. And the end of it deals with a, a related set of topics and in a similar way. And the stuff in between is very different. It's dealt with a different way. It's, it's an assortment of topics and things like that. So I'm not trying to skip over something and exclude it. We're going to try and hit it thematically and come back next week and cover that middle section. But today we're going to talk about starting in chapter uh, 20 and verse uh, 22. And, and let me uh, read God's word just in, in that section there. And then, uh, and then we will get started with what we're looking at today. So I'm in Exodus chapter 20. By the way, if you're using a pew Bible, it's page 61. Starting in verse 22, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it out of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Let's pray. Father, we come to your your word now, recognizing this is your word, that you, our creator God, have uh, you have spoken to us. And you've spoken to us in your word. And so we come to you now and ask that you would speak to us again. Ask that you, by your spirit, would uh, help us to engage in the text that we're looking at. That you would speak to us. That you would use your word in our lives and in our hearts. That you would change us, even this morning as we come to this passage. Pray for your guidance. Pray for your help. I pray that you would help me to speak. And that you would help us to glorify you as a result of what we look at. So... We see at the beginning of, uh, of our section here in verse 22 that it's talking about worship and altars. This whole first paragraph that we looked at is talking about worship. 
and altars. And he starts off there in verse 22 by talking, uh, telling them that they need to remember whom they worship, right? And the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. So just like at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, so also right here, he starts off by reminding them of who he is, what kind of God he is, the way he speaks, uh, the way, uh, the things that he expects, the way he deals with his people, the way he interacts with them and whatnot. And that's the case here also. Remember whom you worship, right? What he's going to say about worship and what he's going to say about altars and what he's going to say about the things that come are all rooted in the fact that God has spoken to them from heaven. He's not like the figurine gods that sit in the corner, don't really interact. They're just, a, you know, those, those figurine gods are a means of worshiping this God that they believed was behind that. But how much interaction do you think actually happened between the God who was behind the figurine and the people who worshiped him? None. And he says, but you... Children of Israel, you heard me speak out of heaven to you. You know that I'm different. You know that I'm not a figurine who sits in the corner. You know that I'm not an inactive God. You know that I have spoken to you. You have heard me, and it says actually you have seen for yourselves. God speaks and we see it and hear it. God himself has spoken. And so he's different than these neighboring gods. And so they are to remember whom they worship. In verse 23, they are to respect their God in worship. He reminds them, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Right? So he's saying, remember who I am. I'm not like these other gods. You have just experienced this massive thing at the mountain with the shaking of the mountain and the smoke and the lightning and the voice from heaven and the being afraid and all that kind of stuff. Remember that. Keep it in mind. And don't you dare make some little figurine and think that's going to represent me. Even a big figurine. Even one with lots of muscles. Even one that's really strong. Don't reduce me to a figurine. I'm the God who speaks for himself from heaven. Keep that in mind. And so they are to respect him in their worship. And then we move on. The remainder of the passage uh, is speaking regarding altars and worship, regarding altars and worship there. We have 24 through 26, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. And every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones, for if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. You shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. And so the, uh, the, he has special ways he is to be worshipped. Don't make a fancy figurine. Don't even make a fancy altar. This isn't fancy. You know, pile up some dirt, some earth, right? Don't, don't make something that then and in times to come you will begin to focus more on the altar and how beautiful that altar was than you focus on the God himself. Don't, don't, don't be making this hugely ornate, fancy altar. The sacrifice to me is what's important, not the altar that you're placing it on. So pile up some dirt. That's fine. And if, and if you're going to make it out of stones, don't, don't fit it all together, you know, like, like making bricks or something. Don't pile something together that can be easily torn down, that can be easily forgotten because the altar is not the point. 
The God they worship is the point. And he makes an interesting comment there about don't, don't put steps there. You should not go up by steps on my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So later on, actually, when, when the priests are given their, their, uh, their garments and all the, the description of how the, the priests, the one actually offering these sacrifices, were to be dressed, they had undergarments and things so that they would not be exposing themselves, right? Well, this is very different than the way neighboring cultures would worship, right? The neighboring cultures, particularly the fertility gods and whatnot, <clears throat> they were, lewdness was involved, that was normal. It was a part of worship. And the priest, you know, might wear something or might not. That was part of their worship because they were, they were worshiping these fertility gods and things like that. And there was, there was a lot of uh, inappropriate behavior that went on. And, and God is saying here, don't, don't even act remotely like that. Don't even put steps going up the altar that would cause, you know, a guy wearing a robe to step and, 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 you know, his legs be shown or, or, or something that, that would be inappropriate. Avoid all of that mess. You're not, I don't want you to worship me at all like your neighbors worship their gods. And by the way, just pause this for a second. If, if you've been reading in the book of Exodus throughout the, this past six months or so, and I hope you have. There's a lot to learn, and, and uh, reading through it one time doesn't cover the whole thing. But later on in chapter 32, what's going to happen? The whole golden calf incident. And what do they do with the golden calf incident? Oh, they make gods of gold. And they bow down to them, and they, they, they rose up to play. That's a, that's a euphemism. They were worshiping exactly like their pagan neighbors worshiped with all lewdness and, and, and inappropriate behavior and dress and whatnot, they're going, to break, they're going to break these commandments. It's exactly what they're going to do. And so he's telling them here, don't do that. There's to be a degree of modesty in the type of altar that you build for me, and there's to be a, an, an equal degree of modesty in the way you worship, the way you dress when you worship, the way the priest dress, dresses when he worships. Worship is not about you, and it's not about, certainly it's not about your, your sensual uh, fulfillment. It's about God himself. And that's going to come to painful uh, reality back in, uh, in chapter 32 when we get to that. So worship and altars. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles now to, uh, turn over to 23, chapter 23 and verse 10. And again, uh, we're, we're moving towards the end of what they call the book of the covenant, this, this portion of the book. And, uh, and we're going to move on. We're going to talk about the Sabbath and rest the sabbath and rest look at chapter 10 excuse me chapter 23 and verse 10 i'm going to read 10 and 11 for six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat you shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard so there was to be rest for the land Rest for the land. We've already talked about the Sabbath when we were going through the Ten Commandments and we talked about uh, the Sabbath and, and the things that it meant. And it's interesting back there in chapter 20 when talking about the Ten Commandments, what did the Sabbath have to do with? It was a reflection back on what? It was a f- reflection back on creation, right? God created and, and then on the sixth day, He rested. 
Six days, I'm reading from uh, back in chapter 20, verse 9. Six days you shall do your labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock, or the sojourner who is with you in the gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, etc. And then on the seventh day he rested. And so back there, we talked about the Sabbath as an individual, a personal thing. And it had to do with reflecting back on creation. And he's going to give a little bit different reason in what he talks about here. What I find interesting is that it's supposed to be a rest for the land. Now, farmers know about rotating crops and they know about those, those kind of things and nutrients in the ground and replenishing. And I don't know much more than what I've already said about that topic. And neither did they. Neither did they. But God said, let the, ran, the, let the land rest one year in seven. Six years you shall sow your land, gather in its yield. The seventh you shall let it rest. Right? And so they were to give the land rest. And it was interesting why they did this and what, what would be the result of this. So if they had a wheat field, for example, or, or some, other, some other crop that, uh, that, would, that would come up again, that year they were not to harvest it. They were not to work it. And how would that benefit the community? Well, if there were poor people in the community, people who needed food... They would go into your field and they would gather what they could gather. They would pick it up and you'd let them. That was a normal thing. And so they'd come and they'd gather all that they could gather so that they could have food from this field that you weren't, weren't working and you weren't going to get a yield from anyway. You were forbidden from harvesting it, etc. And so the poor people would come in and in that way the poor would be provided for. Right? And so it was built into the very system uh, that, uh, of laws that they received. And so the poor people would be provided for, and even the animals, right? So your, your neighbor, maybe his pasture's terrible, you know, and, and he's, got some, he's got some animals and he needs to bring in and pasture them on your field. I, I guess that would be okay. You know, you're not using the field anyway. You're not going to uh, plant and harvest until next year anyway. So there was a rest for the land. And by the way, the people didn't keep this. If you remember your Old Testament history, you see later on when they went into exile... They went in exile for a period of time, and that period of time was determined based upon how many years they had ignored this commandment. They hadn't done it. And I think about that. It would be a little bit difficult, you know, to let your field go. And I, I, I had a discussion with a friend about, well, if you had two fields, would you, would you let one rest on year one and then another one rest on year four and that way stagger them? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know of anywhere in the Bible that talks about that. I think probably most people at this time had a field and they would, they would work their field for that six years and they would gather all they could and they would conserve and they would plan and think of the future. And that seventh year, they weren't going to get a yield from their one field. And so... It was to provide for the poor in their midst and, and to, vibe, to, to provide for even the, even the animals in the area. So it was to be rest for the land, but it was also to be rest for man. Look at verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Right? And so we uh, bring back uh, this same commandment about resting one day a week, and for them it would be the Sabbath day, which was Saturday, the seventh day of the week. And uh, But this time the emphasis is not on just stop working so that you can honor the Lord as He, as he did creation, but it's, it's focusing here on the fact that you're supposed to rest. The result of it is there at the end of, the, at the end of verse 12. You're to be refreshed. Refreshed at the end of your day of rest. And so your, your body needs that. 
God who designed you knows that, that you need rest. And, and he built that right into the fabric of this culture that he's setting forth here when he says you need a day of rest so that you could be refreshed. And if you look at it, you see who it was focused on here. The people that did the heavy lifting and the heavy work in life, they would be very happy for a day off, for a day to be refreshed. You know, even, even your ox is supposed to feel refreshed the day after resting. And so I wonder, you know, the, I, I don't know what your own take on um, how, how you celebrate a Sabbath. I don't know. We've, we've talked about that in the last couple of weeks. I don't know how you've built that into your own life where you have an actual rest period, where you're not continue, you're not just changing the type of work you do, but you're having an actual rest period. You're setting it aside as a Sabbath to the Lord, and you're resting from your work and, uh, and, and those things. I don't know how you do that, but my question is, at the end of it, do you feel refreshed? Do you feel refreshed? What's our, what's our cultural take on Monday mornings? They are anathema. <laughs> Monday mornings are awful. People aren't refreshed. We need to be refreshed. So it's to be a rest for land. It's to be a rest for man. But it's also to be a rest in God's provision. Look at verse 13. Pay attention to all that I have said to you and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be on your lips. Now, of course, this could be this. This seems like it's a restatement of other things that have gone on in the in the Ten Commandments, other commandments that were given that you are to be loyal to me. You're not to be going after other gods. Don't have other gods in my presence. Don't have other gods certainly before me. Uh, All of that stuff. Right. But in this passage, I think it fits in with the fact that if you if you were reducing your production, your seven year production, you were only going to produce for six years out of those seven years. That would cause a lot of changes in life, first of all. Imagine if you took a one-year, you know, vacation, which isn't exactly what they did, but if you took a one-year vacation, every, you know, every, every seventh year was a vacation. It would change the way you spend money, the way you save money, right? But in, but in this time, their neighbors, gods, the neighboring cultures had these gods who were fertility gods. Those gods were the ones in charge of the rain that came down. They were in charge of the, pro, uh, you know, the, the produce. They were in charge of the weather patterns and all this kind of stuff. And, and I think what he's saying here is, now I'm telling you, don't produce absolutely all that you can in any given seven-year period. How does that sit? And then they look at their, their pagan neighbors. And their pagan neighbors are appealing to their gods let us produce all that we can always their gods were in charge of the rain and the fertility and all this kind of stuff and the babies that they had and, and all that kind of stuff i think it would be a temptation if your god was giving kind of strict orders that you know this seventh year you're not going to produce well maybe i'll supplement my production with a little bit of worship over here of this other god who's a fertility god that's that's just my guess of why that's there. I'm not I'm not certain of that, but certainly they were to rest in God Himself and rest in God's provision. Remember, they they're setting up an entire culture that produces six days out of seven and produces six years out of seven. That's the way they were set up. That's a complete mind shift, especially for people who have been working you know, in, in, in making bricks day in and day out for their whole lives for 400 years. So he's changing things and, and he wants them to build a new kind of culture. And it's a kind of culture that, that values you and values your rest and encourages you and builds you up and also provides through you rest for the people that work for you 
and even your animals who work for you. And it also provides for benevolence for the, for the people who need food. You're leaving that field and letting them harvest in it. It's a little contrary to today's culture. We're going to move on to the the remainder of our passage here, 14 through 19, and I've entitled it, Feasting is Biblical. Feasting is Biblical. And we uh, have made a lot of jokes. Several of us have have done different diet challenges at different times, and we've done paleo challenges, and we've done different kind of challenges, you know, and and we try and hold each other to it, and no sugar at all for seven weeks we did, and and which, you know, yielded great benefit and and stuff like that. But but at the end of the day, it was so hard on Thursdays, by the way, because we have our connect group on Thursday night, come together, and we all started cooking paleo for Thursday nights because we didn't want to be bringing in this giant sugary treat that none of us could eat, and sit there and lick our lips and look at and but in the end feasting is biblical not every day you don't feast every day but feasting is biblical and it talks in here verse verses 14 through 17 talk about regular feasting regular feasting three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as i commanded you you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of abib for in it you came out of egypt none shall appear before me empty-handed you shall keep the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year, you shall, uh, three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God. And so we have a description here of the calendar, three different feasts that they would do every year. These three feasts, you had the feast of unleavened bread, which we talked about. We talked extensively about Passover. Right? The Passover meal itself was the one day, and then the, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the remaining week. By the time you get to the New Testament, when they refer to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it can refer to that whole thing. Or when you talk about Passover, it can refer to that whole thing. Right? And so the, the, the language, because those two feasts, uh, those fit right together, um, they, they tend to be conflated a little bit in, in language sometimes. But they were to, to commemorate the Lord's Passover in Egypt of how God delivered them out uh, of Egypt and, and away from Pharaoh. And then seven weeks later, they were to have the Feast of Harvest. The Feast of Harvest. And so uh, in the New Testament, that's where they call, they call it Pentecost. Right? And so that's what happens at Pentecost. So Jesus was sacrificed at Passover, and then seven weeks later, 50 days later, you have Pentecost happening. You have Acts chapter 2 happening. So in that period of time, the celebration of these feasts you see carried over into the New Testament and obviously have very great significance at, the, at, at Pentecost was when the Holy Spirit was given to the church. And so you have, uh, you have New Testament reflection of this going on. And then some months after that, you would have the Feast of Ingathering, right? The Feast of Harvest was when you received the first fruits of your harvest, Harvest isn't done, and you still got a lot of crops left, but you're receiving the first fruits of that harvest. So you would celebrate then. It's a time to celebrate. It's a time to have a feast together. And then at the end of that whole process, when you finished all of the harvesting, you've got it all stored, and you're ready to go, that's when you have Feast of Ingathering. And, uh, and that's when all the harvest has already been brought in, right? So you had these three feasts, and they were scattered throughout the year, and they weren't optional. All of your men were supposed to be there. Why does it say all the men? Is it because they only wanted men there? I don't think so. I think it's because we're talking families and we're talking distance from within a land that they're going to travel to. And how hard is it to, to travel, moms, with little kids? It's pretty tough. And so at least you need to send your men if you can't, if you can't make it yourself. And so this is something that, that uh, wasn't optional. All the males were expected to be there. 
and uh, and they were they were to show up not empty-handed. You were to you were to show up with your with your thing that you're going to uh, worship God with. And very often, by the way, in these feasts, I love how God set this up. This wasn't just a gift, as in you know bring your giant check or whatever and give that to someone else to enjoy. You were to bring stuff, and then you were going to sit down all together and eat it. Not all of it. There were other offerings and stuff that happened, but we're to sit down and enjoy that feast together. It's something that we do together. And this is a means of worship. This is a means of worshiping God. And so that's why I say feasting is biblical. It's not just because I like to feast. I do like to feast, but it was a way to worship God. He had built it in and said, let's do this thing. And so, so we have these, uh, we have these feasts and the regular feasting. Well, secondly, you also have the requirements of the feasts. Look down at 18, verse 18 through uh, the beginning of 19. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened or let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And so he's re-specifying what was to be involved in the kind of feast. We've already talked about Passover and, and that they remember they weren't supposed to leave any of the lamb until the next morning. They were supposed to get a, a lamb that was about the right size for their family. And if their family couldn't eat a whole lamb, then maybe two neighboring families would come together kind of thing. But the goal was to eat the whole thing before the morning. And anything that was left, you were to destroy. You were to burn it. So it wasn't, you know, we have we have leftovers for days after, you know, Thanksgiving, for example. Right? They, they In this one, they were supposed to eat it all that night and make sure there was no leaven in the mix because this is uh, a commemoration of the haste with which they came out of Egypt, right? They were on the run. And so you don't have time to let your dough rise, okay? And, and, and you don't have time to be carrying your leftovers with you. Eat only what you can and be ready to move. You're supposed to stand there with your sandals on and your cloak belted and, you, you know, your staff kind of, you're ready to go. That was kind of thing that he's reminding us about here. And he, he says, he says, don't have any leaven with it. Don't let the fat remain until the morning. And the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. And so you weren't to provide just some of what you had or maybe what you really wanted to get rid of because that, you know, that pile is kind of going bad anyway. It was the best of the first fruits that you were to bring and offer to God himself. And so there were certain requirements for feasts. Now, look at verse, uh, the second half of verse 19. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Seems like an odd thing to state. But did you know this verse or this, uh, this command appears three different times in, in the Old Testament, in the law? Always having to do with, with worship. And so there's something about boiling a, a young goat or a kid in its mother's milk that they were to avoid. And I think, and by the way, the rabbis argue about what this means. And scholars argue about what this means from the, from the text and from the, you know, the wording that's used and all that kind of stuff. What does it mean? In the end, I can't tell you 100%. I, I, I don't know. But I'll, I'll tell you my best guess. I think it has to do with the fact that we are to rejoice in life, not in death. And if you were to take a young goat and you were to kill it, by the way, the law said you couldn't kill it and its mother on one day. So you, you, might, you might kill the goat the, 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 the baby one day and the next day kill mama, take her milk and boil the baby. Uh, or, you know, maybe you just take the milk from mama and, and boil the baby in it. You weren't supposed to do that because, because why? Again, I'm not certain. It doesn't really say, though it seems important to God because he says it three times in the law. But I think it has to do with the fact that you're killing and eating this animal. That's death, right? You're you're not celebrating death, but you're, you're obviously killing something. 
And, and in what way are you killing it or in what way are you preparing it? You're using the thing that is supposed to be a source of life. Mother's milk is supposed to give life. And you're taking that life-giving thing and you're using it for the killing of or they're preparing to serve and eat this baby goat. And I think what's happening is there, there's a, a, a bringing together of two things that should remain separate. Should remain separate. We're taking that thing that should be giving life and we're using it to give death. So that, that's my best guess. I, I'm, you know, you, you may disagree with me on that. I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't claim to have the final word on that. But I do see that there's beauty in that. And I see that there's application in that. I think, I think of our culture, which, which is such, uh, celebrates death in the form of abortion. And I think you know, the, the mother's wombs should be the safest place on earth for a baby. And the same baby will have his life in danger when he's in his mother's womb but then once he's born, he's protected. We take the thing that should be life-giving and we use it to take life. And I, th- I think that's the principle that he's talking about here. But looking at our passages today, two things at least become very clear. When we come to uh, a relationship with God, when we enter into that relationship, one thing is clear, we are no longer in charge of when we work. <laughs> He makes it very clear. Work these days, don't work these days. Work these years, don't work these years. He's in charge of when we work, and we are no longer in charge of our worship, either when or how we worship. God is in charge of both of those things. When we enter into that relationship with God, we hand over the rights to those things. They are His to call the shots. And so those are, those are a couple of things that, that, I, that I draw from that. And so I think, well, how does that apply to us? How, how better do I uh, explain that? Or in what ways do I think about that? And, and, and I think about a lot of applications. I already talked about, you know, being here. We should be here on a Sunday morning. We should be here and learning from God's Word. And, and so I commend you for being here. We should, uh, we should certainly be present in that. But I think it goes beyond that. I think it goes beyond that to, to church membership actual church membership these people were very clearly a member of or members of the the covenant community and they were to make certain sacrifices they were to go three times a year and it wasn't an uh, an optional thing for them to go to the feast they were to be there the women might be excluded under certain circumstances but the men were to be there they were to come uh, with their hands not empty and those sort of things they were committed to being there and then when they got there the worship that they were to give was to be in a particular way don't just mix leaven in with my offering. Don't do that. It's, it's unleavened bread. Right? God is in charge of the way we worship Him. We're not in charge of the way we worship Him. And the same is true when it comes to church membership. That, that just as in the Old Testament covenant community, there was a means of expressing our membership in the community, so now in the New Testament, there is a means of expressing our membership in the community. And I don't just mean the larger body of Christ, what we call the invisible church or the church universal that, that consists of all uh, Christians, all true born-again Christians around the world. But it has to do with our body right here. Do you ever think about church membership? Do you think about that very much? I, uh, I've been slow in coming to my understanding of, of church membership and what the Bible teaches about it. But it certainly talks about it. And so I, I want to look at a passage. Flip over to uh, 1 Peter chapter 
5. We're going to spend just a moment reading through here in 1 Peter chapter 5. This is the first big application of our passage today. Right? I've, I've heard people object to the idea of church membership. I personally didn't give it much thought. But here we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, and, and you have a passage written to the elders, exhorting the elders. So I'm just, I'm just going to read verses 1 through 3. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And so, of course, there's a lot of instruction in there given to elders. And we take those things very seriously. And we hold each other accountable to uh, obeying these commandments because we are elders. But a couple of things that, that I want to notice in here. First of all, he says, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. What flock is that? Is it, is it the group that's here today? Is it, is it the group that's here a week from now or a month from now or a year from now? Or is it the group that was here a year ago? Whom are we to shepherd? This really comes into practice when we have uh, people maybe who, who, uh, who fall into, maybe there's a doctrinal disagreement or something like that. And, and rather than coming to the elders and saying, hey, uh, what's the deal with this doctrine? I disagree with you on that. And then we might be able to instruct them from the word or we might be corrected by scripture. But we don't have that opportunity because people say, I see that doctrinal thing they have. I'm out of here. Or more often what, what happens, I, I shouldn't say more often, what happens is a person enters into a certain type of lifestyle that makes it uncomfortable for, the, uncomfortable for them to be here because they know we're going to preach on that topic. We know we have views on that topic and, and so things like that. And so we don't have the ability to shepherd them because when they enter into that kind of a lifestyle, they just fade away. And they've left, and we're, we're left being unable to shepherd the flock of God that is among us. And so how do we define who the flock of God is that among us, that, that is among us? And, and who are those that he says in verse 3, who are in our charge? Who are those that are in our charge? The ones who are sitting in the seats today or on any given day? How about visitors? Non, Non-Christian regular attenders or non-Christian visitors? How do we draw those lines? And And that's a question that we have in our minds. And so... Who is that flock of God? Uh, Another passage, and this is the last passage we'll go to right now. Go to Hebrews chapter 10, if you would. We're going to finish up in Hebrews chapter 10. You guys know this passage. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As you see the day drawing near. And so I I make a couple of uh, observations on this. Membership is us committing to God and one another that we will consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We're committing to do that with each other. Secondly, it is us covenanting together that we will not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. We are agreeing we will continue to meet together. Who has made that covenant with us? Who has agreed to do that with us? 
Thirdly, when we become members, we are committing to encourage one another. And not just when it's easy to be together, as in we first came to the church or happy things are happening or something like that, but that we are to continue to encourage one another even when it's difficult at church. Encourage one another. And then fourthly, when we become members, we are saying we will encourage one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We will last it out. We will last it out. We will last it out and encourage each other more and more as we see the end approaching. God gave laws to his children, Israel, and they, they were to take part in these regular feasts. They were to meet together uh, with the covenant community before God. And for you, God desires you to be committed and a member of your local church. There is no substitute for church membership. You keep yourself outside on the periphery and, and what pastor is able to come and shepherd you? If you're bouncing between... You're like, a, you're like a cow that, that has no, no, no field to go from one spot to another to keep you from eating at your neighbor's house and then over at your house and then which, whose is it? We don't know who's, who's to minister to you. So a first point of application is that we are to be members of the local church. But there's a second point of application. And that second point of application here has to do with our communion celebration. And so if the men would come forward who are going to help serve communion, I would appreciate that. And we will take this together. The... The Bible talks about, we just, we just read about the regular feasts that they were to participate in together, right? And so this in the New Testament is the one that we are to enter into together regularly. We are to observe the Lord's Supper or communion. We are to partake of the elements together and encourage one another. And in this way, by the way, we get to encourage one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. This passage in... Uh, Hebrews 10 that I started with, that I, that I just now read, doesn't start with the verse I just read. It starts with uh, verse 19. He's talking about a new topic, and he says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. And then he goes on to talk about let us meet together. God intends for us to meet together in this way. He intends for us to be committed this way. He intends for us regularly to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And this is a feast, in a sense. This is a feast of us reminding one another about what Jesus did for us. We're no longer... We're no longer under the law. We're no longer in the Old Testament waiting for a deliverer to come. But He has sent His own Son, entered His Son entered into this world. And He took on flesh to become one of us. And then He went to the cross, innocent though He was, to pay the penalty for your sin, to be horribly beaten, bruised, pierced, hung on a cross, and killed for you. He did that so He could redeem you, so that He could buy you, figuratively speaking, out of the land of Egypt so that you could be redeemed. And so we have this feast that we get to celebrate together. And so we we start with the bread. And and the bread of, of this covenant that we have together is the body of Jesus himself that he gave as a sacrifice for us. God is indeed holy. 
And entrance into his presence, by the way, is impossible for fallen, sinful people like us. We're creatures. He's the creator. That's why there was a curtain surrounding the holiest place within the temple and within the tabernacle. There was a a curtain guarding so that people wouldn't accidentally go in where it was deadly, where they would be in God's presence and thus die. And so Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice in his body so that a way might be made for us to enter God's holy presence by the sacrifice of Jesus' own body. And so we celebrate that in the body of Christ. And so let's pray right now as we partake. Father, we we come and we remember in this feast, there's not a lot of food, but oh, there's spiritual food. We come and we remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf, that he went to the cross willingly, not as a martyr, not kicking and screaming against his will, but by his own plan, went to the cross offered his own body, beaten and bruised and pierced and hung on a cross, sacrificed himself so that we, so that we might be forgiven of our sins. So as we partake of this now, Lord, I pray that you would help us remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.